As always, uh, let's take our Bibles and uh, turn it to the book of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3. And today I've entitled the sermon, The Secret of a Healthy Church. Uh, we all love secrets. We all love to hear secrets, find out what is the secret, please tell me. And uh, But God's secrets are open. His secrets are revealed. His secrets are found in the Bible. And in this passage, God has given us the secret to a good church. Um, a church that I pray we would continue to f- be by God's grace and um, to encourage other churches to be as well um, as we visit others and encourage other Christians as well. So let's read together God's word, 1 Timothy 3, and we'll read from verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave In the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. It's the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. We thank you for your precious, precious word. Lord, would you please um, instruct us through your word, convict us of any sin, and comfort us from any pain that we might have experienced because of unhealthy churches. Lord, please protect us from that and help us, Lord, to be faithful to you, Lord Jesus, as we become more like you and seek to obey you in all things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, if you've ever been in a church or part of a church for any length of time, you will know that the church gets messy. People can act and behave in ways that you would have never never expected from other Christians. Or maybe it's not the behavior that has hurt you. Maybe things have been taught in the church and said to be true. You've believed it. You've lived it out. And it turned out to be grossly false, grossly wrong. And you, you are broken or at best immature. Now, in one sense, we should not be surprised by this. The early church, 1 Timothy itself, has been written in a church where there are false teachers and they, the men and the women didn't know how they should function and what roles they should be doing. If you read 1 Corinthians, then you get a big, big, a, a very good picture of how bad a church can get, yet it was a true church. So there is nothing new under the sun in one sense, right? I like to say this, and I don't say this lightly in any sense, but if we as Heritage Baptist Church, or I as Pastor Rian, have not disappointed you yet, give us more time. Right, Because all of us, the church is full of people in the middle of their sanctification. We are sinners saved by grace and only when Christ returns or we die will we be free from our sin. We will be sinless. But we were never meant to put our hope in churches. Ultimately, we were meant to put our hope on Jesus. On him who can never fail us, who can never disappoint us, who is truth himself, who is perfect in every way. 
Now, of course, I'm not talking about false churches who preaches a false gospel or who blatantly contradicts the gospel in their lives. I'm speaking of churches that hold a biblical gospel and really search to strive to become like Christ. And I'm also not implying in any sense that when a church hurts, hurts you in any way, that that church is excused. That's not my point. All I'm saying is on this side of eternity, this is what you can expect. And even biblical churches are imperfect at best and unhealthy at worst. Many have stumbled over other Christians in their attempt to come to Christ. Beloved, I don't know what has happened to you in church or how you might even feel about church. Maybe it was the hypocrisy or the false teaching. But our text in, in 1 Timothy 3 will show us the secret to a healthy church. What God intended the church to be, the purpose of the church. And it is when churches do not fulfill these purposes that, that people are hurt. And the secret is Jesus. Right. He is the secret of a healthy church. His gospel and becoming like him is what makes the bride of Christ beautiful. So our eyes should never be on the imperfect church, but on the perfect savior, on the perfect shepherd. And this text will show us what God intended us to be. So this section in 1 Timothy turns a page. Paul is encouraging young pastor Timothy what he must do in the church at Ephesus. Now, what we, are, what we are beginning to read from verse 14 is the heart of the letter, the middle part, where Paul now instructs Timothy on very personal matters, talking to Timothy individually. The structure of our passage is, can be easily divided into two purposes. There are two purposes in this section. First, we will see the purpose of the letter, why Paul wrote, and secondly, the purpose of the church, why God intended the church. So number one, what is the purpose of the letter, 1 Timothy? Now, whenever you read that in a Bible, you should perk up and you should become very happy because when the Bible says, I have written this so that, then you should reread the whole book and see it in that light, right? So John's gospel, for example, I have written that you may believe. So, oh, let's now read the rest of John's gospel and see that theme. Now here as well, look at what Timothy, or what Paul is saying. In verse 14, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things, 1 Timothy, to you, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So Paul says, I would rather be in person, I want to come to you soon, yet circumstances are such that it is best and the most loving thing to do just to write, that I know you would, that you would know how to behave. And he writes it for that purpose, right? That you might know how one ought to behave, how to behave in a household of God. The you here, remember in Greek, you could be either plural or singular. Interestingly, here, the you is singular. So Paul says, you, Timothy, that you might know, you as the leader of the church, might know how one ought to behave in the church. It shows what a massive responsibility rests on the leaders of the church for the church to be healthy. If the pastors and the elders don't know what God wants in the church or what the truth is, how can the rest of the church know what they must be doing? Now, I do want to make a side application here that I think is critically important for our modern era regarding our Christian life. 
Now it is the obvious observation that Timothy will know what God wants for him to do in the church by reading 1 Timothy. Now it's like, okay, thank you, thank you, Captain Sherlock Holmes. Like, wow, what a revelation. But notice what Paul didn't say to Timothy. He didn't say, Timothy, be sure to listen to the Holy Spirit to tell you how to behave in the church, what God wants you to do in the church. Or Timothy, become quiet, get a vision from God for the church, and then you will know how to behave in the household of God. No, what does he say? I have written these things that you might know how to behave. So the Bible is sufficient to guide the Christian pastor and I would argue the Christian in general as well, into the will of God. The word of God is all that man needs to lead God's people and to live a godly life. Now, please, just uh, uh, part of that side note, go, go, come with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 to 17. 2 Timothy three sixteen. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God, which is the leader or the pastor, may be complete, equipped, for every good work. How many good works will the scriptures equip us? Right? Is all of scripture, every good work we will need to do is found in the Bible. We can learn it in the scriptures. Now the reason I'm saying that, that might sound like a very uh, small point, but I think it is the difference between maturity and immaturity in the Christian life. If you would simply ask this, the next time you hear any pastor any Bible teacher tell you anything, pause and ask, where is that in the Bible? And then not just that, but go and look at the context, look at the main point, look at the book as a whole. Recently, if I can give you an example, I've heard a pastor teaching people how to flow in the Holy Spirit. So giving five steps or how many steps, I don't even know how many steps he gave, but how we can learn to flow in the Spirit. Now, what should you ask immediately? Where is that in the Bible? Where do we find the how to flow in the Spirit? Now, the answer is nowhere. It's nowhere. Now, ironically, that pastor said the following. You won't hear this taught in, the, in churches these days, but let me teach you. Well, the reason it's not taught in churches, it's not there. <laughs> okay? If it was there, you would be hearing it. We don't see Jesus. We don't see the apostles. We don't see in the churches. Paul teaching us how to flow in the Spirit. Now, that's just maybe a radical example. But, beloved, do this with everything. Everything you hear, learn to ask just that one question. Where is that in the Bible? Because the Bible is sufficient to teach us all things, how to live a Christian life, right? Every good work. That's always why I encourage you that if you come to church, have your Bibles with you. Open your Bible. See whether you see what I see in the Bible, and be, be free to disagree with me and come and let's speak about it, right? But beloved, what a treasure we have in this book. What, how thankful should you and I be, should we be, that God has spoken to us clearly, sufficiently in his word. Let's go back to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 3. <clears throat> now that's the purpose of 1 Timothy Right, that you may know how to behave in the house of God. But secondly, 
Let's consider the purpose of the church. We also see in this text why God created the church and why he wants us to be the church. Verse 15 again says, I write these things that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So here are two basic purposes that God has for the church. Number one, to live godly lives, to behave, right? If I can put it like the ESV says it, as well as to teach and speak the truth. Live godly lives and uphold the truth. So let's consider the first purpose. What's the first purpose? To live godly lives. That's the first purpose. This is the main thing Timothy is to know in order to lead the church, that you may know how one ought to behave. Now, it almost sounds like a parent telling a child, behave yourself. Okay, so I personally don't like the way the ESV has translated this verse. I think it's a better translation to say how you should conduct yourself, how you should live in the church, not just behave with your finger on your mouth, something like that, but rather how God wants us to live as people, as Christians. God cares about the way we live. Our lives as Christians are to adorn the doctrine of God. It's to beautify the truth. And that conduct will especially play out in our love for one another, our love for fellow brothers and sisters. That's why the church is called the household of God. Look at verse 15 again, that you may know how one ought to behave. Where? In the household of God. Now, we have seen what that word means in chapter 3, verse 4, when it says, He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So it's clear household doesn't primarily refer to the building or the house, but rather to the family, to the people inside that house. Right? So when we talk about the family, the household of God, it speaks firstly to our love for one another. How should we view one another in the church as our brothers and our sisters? The way we treat one another should be with holy love as we would love our own family members. Now this anticipates what Paul would write later in chapter 5. Just look at chapter 5 verse 1 to 2. It says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. You see, we see our relationships, even the cross-generational relationships are transformed. We see older men, older women as our mothers, our fathers, and people our own age are our brothers and our sisters in Christ. This is what it means to be a, uh, to be a Christian. This is what a good church looks like, a godly church. Is treating the church members as family members. And by the way, that is why forgiveness is so essential for a church. Forgiveness. It is impossible to live together, to regularly meet together, and not at some point sin against one another. If I could use a parallel with marriage, you would know two people marrying are bound to hurt one another. That's just the nature of two sinners dwelling together. But the marriage that lasts is the marriage where the people have learned to, to repent, right? To stop their sin. But secondly, very important, to be able to forgive one another. Without forgiveness, no marriage will last. 
and without forgiveness, no church can last. Listen to what Jesus said to, very famously to Peter in Matthew 18. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother, we could put in brackets, my husband, my wife, or my Christian, how often will they sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. So Deborah and I always have this joke, like when, when, when either of us sin, you would say, okay, you have 489 chances left today, and then tomorrow it starts over again. Right? So the idea is it's limitless. It just doesn't end. Refusing to forgive when someone sinned against you is the number one reason why churches split, break up. And on the flip side of that, you would say people that refuse to repent, people that refuse to humble themselves, to confess, But remember the wise words of Paul in Ephesians 6, verse 12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual force of evil in the heavenly places. We have a, our enemy is not one another. It is the devil's desire to use our anger, our bitterness, our hurt, and turn it into bitterness, unforgiveness, and so turn us away from, from Christ and his church. Earlier, listen to Ephesians 4, 26. Be angry, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to whom? To the devil. If we are angry, if our sons, if the sun sets over our anger, we're opening doors in our heart, in our minds to the devil, to the devil. Now again, beloved, I want to clarify this. It's, I'm not saying that a church or a Christian that has hurt you is right. This is far from what I'm trying to say. I'm not even saying that it would be wise at some time or some circumstances to leave a church for some reason. Sometimes there are good reasons to leave a church. All I'm saying is that there is no relationship that can survive without forgiveness. So lay down that bitterness. Lay down the burden of bitterness and unforgiveness. Remember the cross. Remember what it cost God to forgive you. Put that in the scale and then put the other person's sin in the other part of it and measure it. And let that free you to say, I'll forgive because I was forgiven of infinite amount of sins. So being the household of God implies this brother, sister, family relationships. But it also, more importantly, points us to God's love for us. We are his children. Listen to 1 John 3 verse 1. It says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. By grace, God has adopted us into his family with his great love for us. Not because we were worthy, but because Christ took our sins on the cross in our place, satisfied the wrath of God fully over all our sins, that we can be reconciled to a holy God and call him Father. That is the mind-blowing reality of every Christian. We call God our Father. That is essential to living a godly life, to love God and love people, especially your family, your church family. Now, there's another description that Paul highlights. Not just are we the household of God, but notice what he calls, he, he mentions something about God specifically in verse 15. So look again at 3 verse 15. He says, 
You may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. The living God reminds us that we are God's dwelling place. In contrast to in Ephesus, there was the magnificent temple of Diana or Artemis, man-made temples. But now, but as the church gather, we are the temple of the living God. This is where God dwells. John Calvin wrote, there are good reasons why God should call the church his house, for not only has he received us as his sons by the grace of adoption, but he himself dwells in the midst of us. Imagine how encouraging that must have been for the little church in Ephesus, considering the temple of Diana, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, but it houses a dead God, a dead idol. It is empty. It, there's no life in, in idol worship. But we as the church, we are the temple and the house of the living God. No matter how small we might be, this is where God has decided to dwell. Another commentator wrote well, he says, By speaking of the living God, Paul heightens the awareness amongst the believers of God's presence and his reality. To those who might be taking notice of the presence and activity of the false teachers, Paul wants to remind them of a far greater reality. So, beloved, what again, whatever pain or hurt you might have experienced from other churches or other Christians, there is still a living God. It doesn't change him. Do not reject a perfect God because of imperfect people. That would be the folly of follies. To reject the perfect Jesus because of imperfect followers. I love this, this attitude in Peter in John 6. Listen to this. I love this. He says, after this, many of the, his disciples turned back and no longer walked with Christ. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. <laughs> I just love that. Like, Lord, You're the living Christ. You are the truth. You are the way. Where shall we go? To whom shall we go? You see, it doesn't change the fact that God is, that there is truth, that God is still alive, no matter what people do, no matter how inconsistent people are with the Bible or with the truth. He is the I am. Now, this naturally leads us to the second main purpose. So Christians are to live Godly lives in the church and amongst one another in loving one another. But secondly, the church is called to uphold the truth. This is one of the purposes of the church in verse 15. Again, it says the church is the church of the living God, which is a pillar and a buttress of the truth. There's a sense in which truth doesn't need to be defended by anybody. Truth remains the truth no matter what happens, right? Two plus two is four is true in South Africa and in China at all times. That never changes, okay? Yet, God has designed the church to be a pillar, to be a, to, to hold up the truth for all to see. Now think of a pillar. It is that up to uphold the roof and to hold it high so that everybody can see it from far away. That's the idea. Similarly, the church is to uphold the truth of the gospel for everybody to see, everybody to hear, and then to see how that gospel changes our lives. 
that the message and the lives correspond to one another. You're talking about this God of grace, and I can see how you just give grace to people. That's not normal. How you forgive, how you bear the fruit of the Spirit, right? So when we let our light shine and do many good works, that's one way to be a pillar of the truth. But also, very importantly, to actually speak the truth, to tell the truth, to know the truth. Sadly, many pastors are like Samson, who grab the pillars of truth and break it in and so both kill themselves and those who hear them. This is what Paul later would say to Timothy in chapter 4, verse 16. Just look at this, 1 Timothy four sixteen. He says, keep a close watch on yourself, Timothy, and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. What happens when the Timothys of the world do not keep watch on themselves, do not persist in the teaching? They will be lost, and those who hear them will be lost. And is it not so true that if the church is not this pillar, if they are not living godly lives or teaching the truth, what happens? Even though the truth remains unchanged, many people never will believe the truth because of the church. That's just the reality. I will say, I, I don't want to believe in this God because the Christians that I know or the, the way they've just said, used this verse, I can't believe that's right. And so God has wedded these two purposes together to, to uphold the truth and to live godly lives. That's important for, for a healthy church. And this is a thing you can remember. Bad theology hurts people. You know, it might feel innocent, it might even feel good in the moment, but bad theology hurts people. Bad living hurts people. So what is the secret? What is there anything that can bind these two things together? Our lives, godliness, and the truth. Is there anything, is there a secret that can bind it all together? Well, Paul ends this section section with the mystery of godliness. Look at verse 16. He says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Notice those two words. Mystery refers to a, a truth that has been hidden in the past but now revealed. So it refers to the truth. And godliness refers to what? Our lives. You see, the mystery of godliness, he takes these two things, our lives and the truth, and he puts them together and he says there is a secret. There is a mystery here. And what is the secret? Well, then he just goes on and quotes or talks about what, who Jesus is and what he has done. He is the secret. He is the secret that binds truth and living together. Truth is centered around Christ and godliness is becoming more like Christ. You see how that's just a simple summary of everything we need to be and to do. It is Jesus. So a church that is not focused on the gospel, not constantly lifting up our eyes to him, even if they speak true things about God or about living, they will inevitably become sick because God has wedded our godliness and the truth to a person. Like, like John, what should we say? We should, this should be our prayer. He must what? Increase. And I must decrease. This should be our longing. This should be our desire. When you come to church, you should have that longing. You should be itching. Show me Christ. 
don't tell me five ways to endure Monday mornings and, you know, yeah, interesting. I like that. But show me Jesus. Give me more of him. Show me the truth again. Let my heart worship him again. That you should be living here with a greater devotion to him. Lose him and you lose all. One commentator summed it up so well. He says, in Christ's person and work lies the key to the strength and flourishing of the faith community Timothy oversees. You see, in him, in him is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So let's look at these next six lines. These next six lines, we'll go through them very quickly. All speaks to his person and his work. And now there are different ways that commentators have tried to structure them and try to order them. But I think it's best just to go line by line. Okay, so we're not going to do that. (laughs) Okay, so line one reads that he was manifested in the flesh. This speaks to the incarnation of Christ. The word was with God. The word was God. And the word became flesh. This refers to the son of God adding a second nature to himself, a human nature. And again, in the context that's following, this should have helped the church not to reject the beauty and the goodness of physical creation. Because later in chapter 4, you'll see that the false teachers have forbidden marriage, forbidden food. So Paul says, no, he was manifested in the flesh. God himself became flesh to show that God is not against material things. Goodness of creation. Right? Line 2. He was vindicated by the Spirit. The Spirit descended on Christ in his baptism. The Spirit empowered Christ in his miracles. But ultimately, Christ was vindicated at his resurrection. At his resurrection. Listen to Romans 1 verse 4. It says this, And he, Christ, was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Think about it. It makes perfect sense that the cross was the ultimate proof for the Pharisees that Jesus was an imposter, that he was a fake. You see, so he was, he needed to be vindicated that he wasn't fake, that he was the Messiah and his resurrection proved it, that he is the way, the truth and the life. Remember what they, they, they said to Christ on the cross. He saved others. He can't even save himself. He needed to be vindicated. And the ultimate vindication is his resurrection. He was vindicated by the Spirit. That that's the decisive proof that he is true. What a source of comfort for Christians, right? Our faith corresponds to reality. We don't believe this because our parents believe it. We don't believe this because we just like it. We believe this because it corresponds to to reality. This happened. This is history. He was vindicated by the Spirit. Line three reads, seen by angels. This, think of all the angels that was involved in his ministry at his birth, in the wilderness, after he was tempted, they strengthened him. In the garden of Gethsemane, they strengthened him. At his resurrection, there were angels that witnessed it. You see, angels were the witnesses as well. But angels can also be translated as messengers, the messengers. So it could also refer to the apostles, the eyewitnesses who saw Christ, who touched Christ, who, who, had he, who, who saw him after he was risen from the dead. So along with heavenly eyewitnesses, we have earthly eyewitnesses, the messengers, the angels and the apostles. Line four reads that he was proclaimed among the nations. 
Jesus commanded us to go and to preach the gospel to all nations. When Peter preached at Pentecost, it says there were people from all nations there. So you could say that when he preached the gospel at, at, in Acts 2, he was preaching to all nations, in a sense. This has always been God's heart, for all peoples to be saved. Not just um, Afrikaners or anybody like that, or the English. No, God's heart is for all nations of all people. And it's only the gospel that can change people's hearts from every culture. I love this story. I have to share it from Papua New Guinea. When those those people came to Christ, their hearts were so transformed. They built this little church structure where they met together. Now, of course, um, everything that goes wrong in that culture now is the Christian's fault because they are no longer worshipping the ancestors. So everything that's wrong is the Christian's fault because the ancestors are punishing us because they have rejected them. So they came and they burned down that church building. When the Christians came, seeing what happened, they, they stopped the unbelievers and said, please don't go. Can we at least cook you a meal? And they used the ashes or the, the coals of the church building to cook them a meal because how could they go hungry? The people that just burned out in their building, right? What is that? Tell me what is that? Unlike contra Islam that needs to spread through the sword, through fear, through violence, the gospel spreads through transformed minds and hearts. It's the truth, you see. Line 5 reads, He was believed on in the world. Although initially rejected, what happened after Pentecost, 3,000 people came to Christ, and then later 5,000 people. This is the power of God to transform the lives of people. And lastly, we read, He was taken up in glory. Jesus ascended to heaven, seated at the right hand of God the Father. From there, he will return to judge the living and the dead. And when he comes, he will make all things new. This is, he is, the secret and the mystery of godliness. The secret of truth, the secret to live a godly life is to know him and to love him and to study him, to become more like him. He is a perfect savior, a perfect Messiah, the one who has come to save sinners, sinners like you. He came for you. And the good news is that he promised that he will build his church. The gates of hell might come, but there will always be a remnant chosen by grace. His elect will endure till the end. Dear church, this is your purpose. This is our purpose, is to live godly lives and to uphold the truth. All focused on Christ, his person, his work. And if you are standing on the outside of the church and you don't know him, then come to him. His promise is that if you come, he will, his burden is light. He will give you rest. If you are tired and weary, if you are thirsty and hungry, come to him. He satisfies our souls. And he is the reason you exist. So follow him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, that you have 
revealed yourself to us through your word and ultimately through the word, your son, the Lord Jesus, and that he is truth embodied. He is the standard of beauty, the standard of perfection and holiness and goodness and justice and truth. Lord, we confess that we often lose our focus off of him. We, when we turn to other gospels and other ways to be saved, Lord, we reject Christ and abandon him and turn to other gods and other loves. But Lord Jesus, you, you are the one who's come to save sinners, sinners like us. Lord, I pray for us as a church that you would please help us to repent quickly from our sins and to uphold the truth we would never lose sight of the, of the good news of Jesus. And that that would transform us to become more like him and to share your truth with others who need you. Lord, thank you for your patience. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you that you never change. We pray this in Jesus' name.